Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. Each week, we'll bring you the teaching from our central campus. We hope it's an encouragement to you. Thanks for listening. So if you go to the Oregon coast, to the Washington coast, on one of those days in the summer where it happens to be 75 degrees... And there's no clouds in the sky. It's like a rarity. It feels like you win the lottery when you're there. But you're there on vacation on that beautiful day. The best thing to do is to get in the ocean. But not all the way because it's still frigid, right? So you go like up to right above your knees. And there's this fun game like at least I like to play where like you try to like you say, Tide and waves come at me. Have your, try, try to knock me down. You're not going to knock me down. And you just wait. And you just kind of push your legs down into the sand. And you see if you can stand firm. A couple years ago, I invited my kids to try in this game with me. Um, and of course, um, it uh, became a disaster. Um, <laughs> My son decided he'd learn a lesson in physics so he would jump as soon as the waves came. But here's how that works if you're new to physics like my son was. The waves are moving at a fast pace and if you're not planted in the ground, uh, you're very likely to just get knocked and go boom like that and then become a flailing mess in the ocean water, which is what happened. Um, like this. Uh, and, um, you know, I don't know uh, if my daughter was kind of trying to help, but soon after she fell as well. And there I was not in quite David Hasselhoff mode. My, my bodyguard or whatever lifeguard and bodyguard, I guess, uh, skills are pretty minimal. And so I tried to help, but I fell as well. And within a moment, all three of us, we were just flailing messes there in the tide. And Candace, the wife and the mother in this equation, was off a couple hundred feet away reading her book in perfect quiet. Um, It's hard to not get knocked down by the waves on one end and the receding tide which drags the sand with it on the other. And of course, that is part of the fun, right? To see if you can stand firm on the shifting sand. Maybe you know what I mean. You feel like though, I don't know, um, sometimes that feels like life where we've planted our feet on something. Maybe it's like how much money we have and we feel pretty good about the income that's coming in. That's what income does. It comes in. Or we feel good about how we're celebrated at the workplace when everybody loves us. Or maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a place in our family, some level of status. We feel pretty good and we've got our feet planted in that place. And then all of a sudden we get the waves coming at us and the shifting sand. Except it's not a vacation and it's not 75 degrees. It's real life and it's challenging. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there right now. You've developed the plan that is going to ensure lots of security and safety, the financial plan, 
the family plan, the parental plan, the calendar plan, the communication plan, the plan, the plan. It's going to offer everything you need. It's going to protect you from every liability except then we realize again, it seems like we forget and we have to realize it again that there are these things called waves. There's this thing called shifting sand and the plan doesn't work like we thought the plan would. Today we're going to see that Jesus not only shows us how we can find security in a world of shifting sand and powerful waves, but we'll also see that the source of standing firm is not found in the stuff that we often trust in. We're looking at Mark chapter 13, and um, this is a really interesting passage. We're going to be actually looking at the whole chapter, but we're not going to be reading the whole chapter. So here's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to, if you maybe even just downloading the Bible app for the first time, maybe if you're new to the Bible, you know, just kind of like download that app and then have the chapter open throughout the teaching. Or if you have a paper Bible, go ahead and open to it. Because I think it's going to be helpful as we're not reading the whole passage, but talking about the whole passage, so to understand and give clarity to all the little intricacies about this passage. It's one of those ones that, like, oftentimes I remark, you might want to wear a seatbelt because, like, it's kind of a it's an interesting one and often described as an end of the world kind of passage. So hopefully you feel a little alerted and nervous right now, and then it's working. All right. So we're going to start in chapter 1 of Mark 13, as one does, start in the beginning. And it begins there in Mark chapter 13, verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. You got to love Jesus' response here. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Jesus, you know, it's kind of like, the guys are just like stoked on the buildings. Just give them, let them just be stoked on how cool the building is, you know? Like, what's Jesus doing here? On one hand, you can relate to the disciples. Maybe you've flown into New York City or flown in to some place where you haven't seen the skyline and, and all of a sudden you're, you, you have a window seat and you look out the window and you're just like, whoa, it's real. This place really exists. That's the Empire State Building. We're gonna land here. This is amazing. And you could relate to the disciples. The disciples didn't live in Jerusalem. They traveled there maybe yearly to do this Passover ritual, this Passover pilgrimage. And so they're like caught off guard by this big city, so to speak. And some of them are talking to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, this place is rad. This place is cool. And Jesus like shocks them. He comes out and he's like, he totally harshes their buzz, you know? He's like, listen, you guys, this whole place is getting knocked down. Why does Jesus do that? It's hard to stand firm in this, in this world if you are overawed with the world. It's hard to stand firm in this world of shifting sand and waves if you're overawed by the world. What do I mean by that? 
Well, it's appropriate to be in awe of the world. It's appropriate to understand this beautiful, mysterious world is amazing and to be in awe of it. We live in a place that is constantly provoking awe for me. There's Mount Rainier somewhere back there. There's water somewhere there. And there's like trees and forests all around. Like people move to the Pacific Northwest because it's amazing, right? Some of you moved to the Pacific Northwest because it's amazing. And you saw those hashtags on Instagram, hashtag PNW, and you're like, I'm God, I'm moved to this place. And you forgot that there's this month called October and that is there's month called November and there's this month called December. And you got aware of that and hopefully you've started to climatize to that. But we, it's appropriate to be in awe of this place that we're in. But what Jesus wants, his disciples who he's talking to, and also the disciples that are around us today, us here, to not be over in over awe of the world. When we're overawed with the world, we're seeing it as the termination, as the terminal point of our worship, and we're forgetting that it is a creation of the creator. And when we forget that it's a creation of the creator, we limit our ability to stand firm in this world because the resources we're drawing from are the resources of this world. So when the world throws its worst at you, it will knock you down because you're drawing from the resources of the world. When you draw from the resources that are found in the person of God, the world can throw its worst at you and you can stand firm. You can stand firm. This is what Jesus is seeking, I believe, to do. He's trying to encourage them in this way. And it goes on in verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. So they've moved. They've moved from the temple to the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is this large hill that is behind the Temple Mount. And so the Temple Mount stands up kind of prominently within Jerusalem. That's why it's called the Temple Mount. And the Mount of Olives is behind that, this large hill in Jerusalem looking down into the temple. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will happen and what sign, that they, uh, what sign that they are all about to be fulfilled. So it's important to know as we're looking at this passage of scripture, what's happening here. The disciples have just heard Jesus say, the stones that you're admiring will be destroyed and then they go up to the temple, uh, sorry, to the Mount of Olives, looking at the temple, and then the disciples carry on this conversation. They're like, Jesus, tell us when all of what you've just said will happen. Now, Jesus goes on to what's called the Olivet Discourse, which it uses this language that feels like, if you're familiar with the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, it talks, you know, the, whole, the prophets and the Hebrew scriptures talk, use these evocative, poetic, powerful, challenging, overwhelming, beautiful language to describe scenes in history. And Jesus picks up on a lot of this language. He uses the language of like the moon going dark and the son of man coming on clouds and families betraying each other and earth earthquakes and war and all of this confusing, hard, difficult stuff throughout the rest of Mark chapter 13. And because of this, many people have thought or have been convinced that surely Jesus is talking about the end of the world. Uh, and it's a common uh, conviction from this passage. What I want to submit to you 
is that Jesus is more likely talking about the experiences that the disciples themselves will have in the coming decades. Now, I want to continue, I want to help develop this argument. For some of you, um, this will be new. For some of you, you'll have heard this, but I think it's going to help us understand Mark 13 and uh, better understand like what might Jesus be talking about and why I believe this is the best reading of this passage. First, think about the literary context, the context of Mark at this point. Jesus has spent the last few chapters critiquing the temple. It's been the sole object of his critique. He's saying the religious system that's built around the temple with sacrifices and rules and regulations, it's all going away. It has an expiration date. And as we just read at the beginning of this passage, he says it actually will be destroyed. It's not just that the religious system will stop working. The whole temple will be leveled. And then in verse 30 of chapter 13, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all of these things have happened. So he's just talked about all of this stuff using prophetic, evocative language. And at the end of the section, he goes, you guys will see it all. So to see it as an end-of-the-world scenario, we have to reckon with that passage in verse 30 and understand, well, how, has that, how did that generation pass away without seeing the end of the world then? More likely, as I've said, Jesus is talking about the immediate things in the next few decades over the life of the church. And you think about, too, the place where the conversation takes place. Jesus is looking at the temple. That's his prime view of the Mount of Olives, looking down at the Temple Mount. And it's one of the busiest times of the year as people are coming in and buying animals with their money or bringing their sacrifices. And so it makes sense that as people are coursing and flowing through the temple and there's all this hubbub, that's the thing that the disciples are talking about. Now, it's interesting even to keep pressing this is that the fall of the temple that I'm suggesting is what Jesus is talking about and the immediate decades there of the church, that fall of the temple, it actually happens. Jesus is speaking, and he's talking here in AD chapter 30, sorry, in AD, not chapter 30, AD 30 or so. And um, then Mark, the gospel of Mark, was most likely composed in AD 65. In AD 70, Rome comes through Jerusalem and levels the temple. Jesus, check this out. Jesus here, about 30 years before, is prophetically seeing what will come in the coming decades to the place where they are at at that moment. Wow. So Jesus wants, in the midst of all of this, you can see there's these kind of like two movements in this Olivet Discourse where he, he says that they, they need to prepare to experience pressure. They're going to be people that are going to be brought before tribunals and they're going to be, they're going to be judged. They're going to experience persecution. And Jesus is like, you have to be prepared for that. 
It's going to be, families are going to be put in tension. It's going to be really hard. And you're gonna, it's all going to happen because you've committed to me. You've said that I am the most important one in your life. And they're going to be testing and pressing and pressuring you because of my name. You need to be prepared for that. You need to be prepared to stand firm. In fact, in verse 13, he even says, those who stand firm until the end will be saved. You have to be prepared to stand firm. And then the second half of the Olivet Discourse, he's talking about the fall of the temple when Rome comes through and knocks it all down and all of this thing that they had trusted in and seen as normal and become the most important part in Jewish religion, the temple with the whole system of sacrifices and all the law codes connected to it. When that's all flattened and a Roman imperial power comes in, you have to be prepared for that. This is the shifting sand and the powerful tidal waves that come sweeping through the first century and that Jesus is saying, this is coming. Be prepared. Be prepared to stand firm. Well, this word or this phrase, stand firm, is not unique to this passage. It's not unique as far as like uh, the word itself, stand firm. Uh, And it's also the concept is not unique in scripture. Term and the idea of standing firm actually courses through the history of the people of God ever since Abraham all the way up into the present point. In fact, Paul in Philippians, he says, conduct yourself in Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are what? Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And there at the end of Philippians, he bookends it with these stand firm commands. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And then in the Old Testament, this is just a sampling of some of the stand firm passages in Scripture. In the Old Testament, in Exodus 14, verses 13 to 14, Moses answered the people. They're right there when the Egyptians are pressing upon them, if you know the story. When the Egyptians are seeking to overtake them and Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Do what? Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, well, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And I love this last little bit. You need only to be still. You only need to be still. Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm. Every Jesus follower throughout the history of Jesus followers, throughout the history of the church, every Jesus follower has had to, at some point, make this commitment, make this resolution to stand firm. It's something that um, a lot of us, if we're Jesus followers, some of us, we can actually remember where we were faced with a moment where we, our faith was tested in such a way that we had to make a conscious decision that I'm going to be a person that's not going to p- place my trust on the shifting sand of uh, accumulation of finances and financial whatever or popularity or a blue check mark or whatever, whatever, but I'm going to place my trust on Jesus. 
every single Jesus follower has had to get to that point where they've made a decision of the will to align themselves with the one who is stronger than the world. This is something that your grandma can't do for you. Your youth leader can't do it for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. It's a personal decision. And it's like marriage where there's a one-time decision that you make to commit yourself to the one who is stronger than the world. But then every day you say that commitment over and over and over again. You recommit yourself to that way. Because there's this constant challenge to place your trust, not in Jesus, but to move it back to something that rests on yourself. Every day we face this. And oftentimes we feel like we have kind of like one foot trusting in Jesus and the other trusting in some type of security that we've managed to drum up. And oftentimes when we are like this, that's when the wind or the waves or the sand usually knocks us down and we have to realign again. So it is like a marriage in this regard where we say yes at a very definitive point and then we keep saying yes. We keep living into this relationship, deepening in it. And as we deepen in it, we recognize more and more that the one we said yes to is continually trustworthy. And that other things are continually untrustworthy. There's a couple different ways that I think that we need to be aware of how we stand firm, like the, the, the what of standing firm, like in, in what areas. It sounds maybe kind of like, you know, um, nice and Christian-y, stand firm, and we all kind of have our different ways of, what, what does he mean by that? Well, okay, I'm going to stand firm. Like there's two areas that I can think of where we all need to consciously, deliberately, regularly stand firm, and the first is in what I would call our convictions. My son, a couple mornings ago, um, I, I, I always try to get up early and, and, and some kid, uh, one of the kids in our house, um, is always there when I get up early. <laughs> I don't know if I can get up earlier. It's a problem. Um, my son was up early and um, he said, Dad, Dad, come here. <clears throat> Dad. And I thought he was going to try to convince me to watch a show. That's normally what happens. And... Um, and he goes, I'm trying to think. And I'm like, oh, good. This is good. This is a good sign. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think. Um, how can we undo that whole Adam and Eve eating the fruit thing? <laughs> how can we undo it? There has to be a way. And I was like, man, the greatest minds have tried, my friend. Trust in Jesus, end of conversation. Um, but what I loved about that was he was actually looking at the world through a biblical imagination. He was looking at the world and seeing this is like 
not just the product of social, political, economic forecasting and crises, but he, he was seeing that the problems of the world were connected to this thing called the inbreaking of sin into the world. And that this world began as God's good creation and that it was affected by humanity's fall as we were viceroys over God's good creation and led it into erosion and corrosion because of sin, ourselves included. And that we would, and this is where he kind of missed out on the whole Jesus coming back to make all things new. He was thinking he could do that. And so, but he was starting to see the world with a biblical imagination. I think, here's the thing, is like when... When you start to see the world with a biblical imagination, it starts to affect your convictions. You start to understand this is how I treat someone with, with, with less resources than me. Because the Bible has a lot to say about orphans and widows. You start to realize that the human being is, is not something that is, that is just an object that I can lust after, but they're, they're created in what the image of God, that they're worthy of respect and honor because a biblical conviction has started to work its way into your life. You start to love your neighbors because whether they follow Jesus or not, they are the objects of God's love. And these convictions start to work their way down from a biblical imagination. And if you don't have a biblical imagination, if you don't see all of creation as beginning in God's good, or all of the world as God's good creation that was broken and that will one day be restored, and we're in this middle point where we're advancing the kingdom of God and we're loving our neighbor and we're gathering together regularly in worship, desiring the day that, when, that he will come, but comfortable and confident knowing that he's here with us and that he he will make all things new even if it hasn't happened yet. When that shapes your understanding and your view, you start to actually be able to stand firm in your convictions. Because there's lots of things that we could have convictions about and there's lots of things the news feed, whether it's Instagram or Twitter or Apple News or whatever you, there's lots of convictions it wants to compel you with. Convictions about sexuality and money and politics and on and on and on. So may I just ask you, what is shaping your convictions? What is it? Oftentimes, if we're just politically conservative, we're looking back to a past day when, we want, when, when things seemed like they were good. And so political conservatism by itself is just wanting to go backwards. Political progressivism is by itself is just wanting to go forwards, thinking the past is the problem. So they either think the past is the problem or the solution. But Christianity and the biblical convictions, they look at the world not just as progressivism and conservatism, but they look at the world through the lens of Jesus and his coming kingdom. So we look forward not to the establishment of a secular society that's finally perfect in some utopian vision, but we will look forward to the coming return of the true king and we advance the good news and we do the work of justice and we love our neighbor and we share the gospel and we do all of that knowing that he will come. Right? 
There are so many things that will shape your convictions if you let it. In our seminary I attended, there was a class called The, the Christian Mind. And such a curious title, but I, I love it because it's this idea of like, what does it look like to, to understand and think from a Christian perspective? Not a, not a politically conservative or a politically liberal, but a Christian perspective, a unique perspective, a kingdom perspective. In our anchor track that we mentioned, that Mason mentioned, that you all should come to, we have a section where we talk about theology, and we have this line where we say, every one of us should be, should be an aspiring theologian. Remember when your elementary school teacher was like, we're all scientists here, you know, and you're like, I don't have a lab coat, I didn't get the memo. Uh, but all of us should be aspiring theologians, because check this out, you learn about what you love. Whatever you're interested in and whatever, you, whatever has captured your heart, you will learn about that. That's why you have all those records that nobody else is interested in. Because there's something in the music that's captured your heart. That's why you said yes to that spouse. Because there was a capturing of the heart. That's why you wanted to learn more about them than just their favorite color. Because you were leaning in, because you were, had, your heart had been captured. And similarly, the Lord, if we're followers of Jesus, at some point, in some way, has captured your heart. And so we lean in and learn about what we love. So we all should be aspiring theologians, thinking about God and letting theology and biblical truth shape our convictions. I love how Paul Said it. He says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. That is pretty BA. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. He just said that. And we take captive, check this out, what do we do? We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Are you taking every thought captive? Another area where we need to stand firm is in, your, in our desires. We are desiring beings. We're not just thinking beings, we're desiring beings. And check this out. It is rarely that we ever desire bad things. Stay with me. We don't desire bad things, but we desire good things in bad ways. Lust is most often a misguided desire for love and affection. Gossip is most often a, a misguided desire to be included and valued. Greed is most often a misguided desire for financial security. So to stand firm means we do not rest on the shifting sand of, of broken desires but that we start to realize that the ultimate source of all of those things is found in Jesus. Check this out. Where does the ultimate source of love and affection come from? Christ. What does the ultimate source of inclusion and value come from? Christ. What does the ultimate source of security come from? Jesus. So in times when we have been straddling this both and, one foot on Jesus one foot in whatever else, the shifting sand, and all of a sudden the waves knock that leg out. It's this beautiful opportunity 
for the Lord to deepen our awareness that true affection and value, true inclusion and, and, and welcome, true security are ultimately found in Jesus. Maybe there's something that has been taken from you. Maybe it's health or a relationship or a financial level of comfort. And in those seasons, sometimes it's a, it's a savage mercy from the Lord where he takes that from you so that you deepen your awareness that the ultimate longing for which you placed your security in that thing, it actually only truly comes from from God. And those, let me tell you, are some of the most spiritually formative experiences in your life. They're the places where the coal of our heart becomes diamonds. They're places where we recognize and learn through deep discipleship to Jesus that He is worthy. How do I stand firm? That's the areas where what, but how do I stand firm? It's repeatedly, repeatedly this. Recognizing, learning, the smallness of the world and the bigness of Jesus. The smallness of the world and the bigness of Jesus. If we could learn this, my friends, we'd be people that would be immovable. Our family last night, we went to see Jesus Revolution. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Um, so total disclosure, usually I don't like Christian movies because they're just poorly done and cheaply done. Um, sorry if I, but I liked, I liked this. It was moving. This is just, an, it's just a commercial, seriously. Um, but of course, at the movies, I'm like going through popcorn like it's like, on fire. I'm just like, ha, ha, you know, come on, we gotta eat all the popcorn, it's disappearing, you know? We gotta, I'm just like, popcorn, popcorn, popcorn. And then we went out to dinner at this barbecue place, and I had um, brisket and ribs, and it was amazing. And I'm sorry, vegetarians. Um, <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Why am I telling you this? Why am I telling you this? I'm comparing those two types of food. Popcorn is just salt and butter. It's hacked the, the taste code, offers no substance, and it's just hacked the taste code and, and convinces us that one more handful will satisfy us, and it never does because it's just salt and butter and more and more compared to the rich fare of ribs and brisket and sides. One leaves you full and satisfied if you're an omnivore. <laughs> and the other just leaves you constantly hungry. I think the way we recognize the smallness of the world is the best it can offer us is popcorn compared to the rich fare that the Lord offers us. The Lord offers you rich fare so that you will never be hungry again, so that you will never have a soul thirst that is parched, but you will just be hungry and it'll be satisfied. You won't have to go out looking for it. It will be something that you've been given. When was the last time that the sand that you stood on actually provided what it promised? Never. You have to constantly recognize the smallness of the world, but then also the bigness of Jesus. The band can come on up at this point.
the bigness of Jesus. This is against um, what um, people that tell you how to preach a sermon will, will tell you to do because I'm introducing a new concept at the end. So just go with me. In verses 26 and 27 of chapter 13, there's something, um, something I think beautiful. I'm gonna read the passage here. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, oftentimes, that passage is understood to be describing what some have called the rapture, where Jesus comes down and he gathers his church. But he's actually, Jesus is quoting Daniel 7. And when you look at Daniel 7, it's not that the Son of Man is coming down, but it's actually that the Son of Man is going up. So actually what Jesus is describing there is not some future event where he returns and we long for that day and we want to see it and it is imminent and we, it could happen today and it could happen in 50 years. We don't know. But what Jesus is describing there is the ascension. After he rises from the dead, he ascends to sit at the right hand of the Father. And check this out. It says, when he, is in, when he ascends, he will ascend with great power and glory. We know that the book of Acts describes Jesus as, in his ascension, as he's reigning now. Jesus is reigning right now. He is ruling and reigning. You look at the headlines, it might not always look at, but he's ruling and reigning right now. And Jesus says there in verse 27, and he will do what? He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds and the ends of the earth and to the ends of the heavens. What is he doing? He's doing that right now. He's gathering his church. He's gathering his church in Nigeria. He's gathering his church in South Korea. He's gathering his people in Iran. He's gathering his people in India. He's gathering his people in China. His world is getting to know about Jesus right now. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's building his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. When you compare the smallness of the world, that it is just butter and salt that makes you want more and more and never satisfies you to the rich fare that is offered from Jesus. And when you know the bigness of Jesus, that he is not a small diminutive God hiding in some alley somewhere in heaven, but that he is reigning. He's reigning and he is building his church. When you know that, you know to not trust in the sand. You know to not trust in whatever the world is advertising and recommending will solve your biggest soul needs now. You'll know that that will never do. It'll never do. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. On Christ, the solid rock all other ground is sinking sand. I want to invite you to stand up. 
There's prayer stations, and some of us need to make a confession of faith today. Some of us have been hanging around Jesus, and we need to start following Jesus, and those prayer stations are for you. Some of us are in a place where we've been, in the, we've been on the sand for a while, and we're following Jesus, but we're kind of on the sand. Some of us need to say, I'm gonna, I'm, I need to stand firm. The life, life is too hard for me to be playing around. I need to stand firm. Those prayer stations are for you. The communion is for you. When you get to hear the word, Christ's blood shed for you. It's, it's, sure sand, it's sure rock. It's not built on anything you've established. It's what he's done for you. Hey, let's say this together. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's do it again. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Say it like it's true. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand.